This week on Behind the Lens, Mayor LaToya Cantrell and other city officials have for months promised the public that the library would be able to absorb the roughly $7 million in cuts that are on this month's ballot without any changes to services and without any detriment to the library system. Critics say this is impossible and blatantly misleading. The United States Supreme Court this week heard oral arguments in a case that could overturn the split jury guilty verdicts of more than a thousand people in Louisiana prisons. The two candidates running for district attorney in New Orleans are both pledging to actively review all the split jury convictions to determine which ones can be retried or tossed outright regardless of the decision handed down by the high court. In other election news, there are several candidates vying for the open seats on the New Orleans School Board. We'll take a look at those. And COVID numbers are on the rise in city schools after a holiday week. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel is here. Hey, Nick. Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen is here. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And the Lens editor Charles Maldonado is also joining us. Hi, Charles. Good morning. All right, Michael, up first in the news for you. Hang on. Big truck. On your beat, Michael, in the news, a vote on three millage propositions that could result in a 40% funding cut to the libraries coming up on Saturday's ballot. The Cantrell administration's continued to push hard for support even resorting to what critics say is misleading information. Explain all these propositions. What, what do they say? Yeah, so, so the propositions are kind of best thought of as a, um, a, a one package, um, one plan, one entire plan. The, the reason why it's split up into three separate ballot propositions, um, according to the city, is simply that there's a word limit on these propositions and there's a lot of details in there. Um, but basically the overall plan, um, which you know comes out of the Cantrell administration, is to reshuffle a group of property taxes worth roughly 23 to 25 million dollars a year. And what this plan does is it, it, it basically shifts seven or eight million dollars that um, was once dedicated that is currently dedicated to the public library system and shifting that funding um, to a number of different initiatives. Um, so that, that includes economic development initiatives, housing, infrastructure and infrastructure maintenance, as well as early childhood education. So again, really the, the, the main thrust of what's happening here is, is library um, property tax funding being shifted to these other priorities, if all three are approved. All right, and what's the problem? What has the Cantrell administration been purporting that these are going to be doing? Well. To hear the Cantrell administration tell it that there aren't really any problems with the propositions, so I'll start with that. They have not focused on the negatives here. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the obvious negative is that, you know, the, the results um, of this proposition would be a 40% um, budget cut for the public library system. Now, the strange thing is that from the beginning, the administration has said that this 40% cut um, can be absorbed by the library um, without any significant changes to what uh, a, you know a patron experiences when they go to the library, and I guess you know the the the, the issue here has been um, at least from the critics' perspective that there hasn't yet been an open and honest conversation about really what this would mean for the library's future. We've gotten hints from the administration about broad ideas about how the library would adjust to their new budget. They've talked about um, you know finding efficiencies. 
Um, they've talked about attrition, so just not rehiring people who, who leave. They've talked about new technology and how that can, um, you know, kind of be a, a multiplier of, of their employees if they have to reduce that. So um, they've given us these kind of broad ideas of how they'll cut down the budget, but they, they've stopped well short of, of kind of fully mapping out, you know, how the library is going to adjust to this new budget. They, now, one of their big arguments is that the library has a fairly large reserve fund. Um, I believe it was roughly, you know, $11 million at the beginning of this year. Um, that's gone up to about $15 million throughout this year. You know, and they say that'll help them um, kind of be able to absorb this for the next two or three years. But th the big question is what happens after that? Once they have depleted their reserves, um, you know, they're, they're currently budgeted for roughly $21 million in expenditures this year. Um, and if this proposal passes, they'll be looking at about $14 million a year. So, you know, again, the plan is for them, you know, seems to be that they'll use their reserve funding for the next two or three years to help them um, balance that. But but what it looks like after that is, is still a, a pretty big question mark. Yeah, and what we found out this week is that it's even a question mark at this point to the to the director of the public library system. Right. He, does, he, he doesn't know what they're gonna do after they deplete their reserve funds. You know, Michael, the way you put it was the city's been saying that they'll use the reserves for two or three years, but in the way I've seen it really is that the city has only been concentrating in its in its messaging on year one, which in which the library is only set to, you know, uh, to have its budget reduced by a small amount. And they really have, have avoided the topic altogether uh, of what happens after we get through years one, two, and three, because this is this library proposition, which the 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 the, the, the one that most directly affects the library is Proposition Two. It's a twenty-year tax proposition. This would be an arrangement that would be set for twenty years. So the city has tried to focus attention on next year, but um, this is something that is that is going to affect ten to fifteen years out. Yeah, and another thing I'll add. I mean, this lack of clarity on on the long-term plan here um has been you know again one of the central criticisms here it was cited by the bureau of governmental research um, when they came out with a report opposing the tax um, it was cited by um the advocate uh, times picayune um in an editorial where they came out against it and yeah again i, I think the the frustration here is that it's hard to even get the conversation started of what the library is going to look like after this because the Cantrell administration repeatedly has just gone with this this tact of well nothing's going to change in fact the library will get even better i mean yesterday they announced that um you know with this new millage they'll be funding a new early childhood education librarian right and 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 that is great and, and it goes to kind of the goal of the, the the early childhood education goal which is you know part of the millage package but um it doesn't explain where that money will come from obviously that'll have to be cut someplace else they're not getting any more money um, than they were this year so um, again, the, the conversation just seems to have stalled at, don't worry about three years from now, um, you know, by that time we'll have figured it out, we'll have right-sized the budget, and nothing will have changed. Yeah, and, and further complicating things is that the Cantrell administration has, you know, on top of sort of avoiding the conversation of, of what will happen after years one, two, and three, they've also made... Um, both false, misleading, and even self-contradictory claims. Um, they they have said if this if all three propositions pass at very various occasions, they said if all three propositions pass, it would lead to a tax cut uh, for for New Orleans residents, which is just plainly not true. 
it takes a group of taxes that is worth 5.82 mils, which is a mil is a, a tax rate, and it creates a new group of taxes that is also worth 5.82 mils. So there is no tax cut there. But yeah. they, have, they, they have repeatedly, including even on the city website, as recently as yesterday, and I'm guessing still today, made the claim that it would result in, in a property tax cut. They've also uh, made various you know, other, other claims about, about the tax as well. Michael went through a number of them in his story last week. Mike, Michael, what else have they been saying about it? Okay, to go over a, a few of kind of the, the misleading or false statements that we've heard, there have been times where the administration has overstated the amount of surpluses that the library has collected year over year. So a, a central part of their argument is that the library is currently ha, currently has too many dedicated revenues, more than they need to spend to, to operate the way they do. Now, Cantrell, uh, in the most extreme um, iteration of this, she went on WBOK and said that the library had underspent its budget by 50% for the last three years. Um, that's not true. In fact, in the last two years, they've spent uh, 97% and 98% of their dedicated revenues. So, so that's another example. I wanted to expand on, on their claim that this is a, a, a going to result in a tax decrease. So they, they've been claiming that, you know, this if, if approved in full, this, this proposal will result in a tax decrease. We've pushed them pretty hard on this one, and they've given us an explanation of their reasoning. I think it, it it's pretty interesting, um, the reasoning they're using, and I think it, it, it merits explanation. So like Charles explained, um, the tax proposal, if passed the way Cantrell wants, if all three propositions pass, the tax, uh, the tax rate, for this group of taxes would not change at all. So whether this pro this proposal is approved in full or rejected in full, the tax rate would be exactly the same next year. Now, they have on numerous occasions said that this these tax propositions will come to voters as a tax decrease. Now, when we've pushed them to explain what they mean by that, what they've explained is that they're factoring in a separate tax decrease. So. The Board of Liquidation, it's, it's a body that um, basically is responsible for issuing and paying back city debts. And they have a dedicated property tax. Um, so they collect money every year so they can pay back these bonds and pay back their debts. And every year they can readjust their, their property tax rate based off of what they think they need in the following year. Um, so this year, that body chose to decrease their property tax rate. Now the Cantrell administration's argument is that if you include her property tax proposal with this separate property tax decrease, then the cumulative effect is a tax decrease. Um, but, the, but the thing about that is the Board of Liquidation tax is going down no matter what. It has absolutely nothing to right. do with this proposal. Right. And, and so by this logic, you could say that the effects of Mayor Cantrell tying her shoes, you know, of course, when, when added to the Board of Liquidation adjustment, um, ends up as a tax decrease. You know, you could apply that logic to almost anything, but but they're not. There's no causation between those things. Okay, New Orleans Advocate Times Picayune publicly came out against this proposal. These three ballot proposals. How much do you think people are paying attention? I think it's gotten very interesting. I, I don't know if it was ever intended um, to be this prominent of an issue. You know, I don't know if that was ever a tactic from from the. Cantrell um, administration, um, but I think it's really hard to predict at this point. I think a lot of it, honestly, will hinge on Cantrell's popularity right now, and I'm not really sure where that is or how to gauge that, but, you know, a lot of the campaign has just featured Cantrell herself, you know, promising that this is what's good for the city. So 
if you're a voter who does trust does trust Mayor Cantrell, you know, if, if you've been instilled in confidence by the way she's handled the coronavirus crisis, for example, which I know people have, um, maybe you want to throw your support behind her in this situation. She's put a lot into this, and she has kind of made this, as a result, you know, a measure of her own influence. So the biggest impact will be, you know, the 20-year taxes, obviously, but uh, beyond that, it'll also, it's also interesting politically to see how the turnout goes and how much political influence Mayor Cantrell has at this point. Yeah, from a from a thirty thousand foot perspective, it's almost um, seems that the people who are opposing this are being unfairly characterized as anti Cantrell. I would say that you are seeing a fairly broad coalition on both sides, including the opposition side, and I think it is it almost definitely includes a lot of people who are typically very supportive of Mayor Cantrell and and people who have who have been behind her in the in the cities you know stronger than average covid response but uh, are not willing to extend that trust to this particular measure mm. i think for even people who who are big fans of cantrell in a lot of cases they're also uh, big fans of the library uh, you know libraries are popular i'll bring up one other factor that i've been thinking about which is um some there are going to be voters that go to vote maybe for DA or um, something else, but, but they come and they see this Miller's proposal and they're looking at it on the ballot on election day and they've never heard of it before. And I think I've been trying to think through how that would go. Assuming that most voters are supportive of the library, which I think is true. When you read the ballot language, yeah. on the one hand, what it says is this is a renewal for a tax for the library and early childhood education. So that would indicate that's a positive thing. On the other hand, it also indicates an even bigger cut than what would actually happen in reality, because the cut, as, as it said in the ballot proposition, is based off the originally um, authorized millage rate, which was higher than what it currently is. So I, I'm, I've been going back and forth in my head about whether you know a voter who hasn't read about this before will read it as a good thing for a library or we'll see it as a as a cut for the library so there's a lot of factors that go in but but you know we'll be watching on saturday yeah okay thank you michael thank you you're listening to behind the lens i'm carolyn heldman my guests this week are michael isaac stein nick crastle marta jusen and lens editor charles maldonado hi I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick in criminal justice. Also on Saturday, New Orleans will elect a new DA. Both the candidates are running on a reform platform and they've proposed an ambitious project, a comprehensive review of all non-unanimous jury verdicts. 
So the Supreme Court heard arguments this week to overturn Louisiana's non-unanimous jury verdicts. How many cases are we talking about in New Orleans? So in New Orleans, there's about 324 cases. That's the number that uh, this uh, legal nonprofit uh, Promise of Justice Initiative has put out. And so statewide, there's they've, they've estimated between uh, 15 and 1600. So how could they how could they review 300 plus cases? Well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that the story looks at is the fact that the next DA is going to be entering into office with a, a significantly shrunken budget. Um, the city council this year cut, cut the DA's budget by over 20 percent. And there's also going to be a, a huge backlog of, of cases that are that are piling up from uh, the pandemic and court closures and the fact that they haven't been doing jury trials in New Orleans Parish. So it's a good question, one that the, the story kind of tries to get at, but doesn't doesn't necessarily answer uh, particularly um, thoroughly, because I don't think either candidate necessarily knows um, exactly how it's going to play out. They have both said that they're, they're going to dedicate uh, resources, uh, Jason Williams, said that he wanted to have at least a few lawyers on it, um, along with some investigators and paralegals. And they've both also said that they'd be willing to team up with community organizations. So in the past, we've seen the DA's office do a partnership with the Innocence Project that look back at, at wrongful convictions. And I think that there's a good chance that something like that will happen, um, likely with, I think, Promise of Justice Initiative, who have already been looking at these cases. You cited in the story a case from, I think it was 1996? Yeah. Okay. How uh, far... It was a 1996 crime, and I, I believe he was convicted in 1997. Okay. How far back do... Obviously, some cases go that far back. Are there some that are even older than that? You know, I think so. I don't have good uh, information on, on these 324 cases. We don't have a list. We only have, we only have the number. Um, but... There are certainly cases throughout the state that go back further than that, that go back to, you know, the 70s. Um, so, yeah, one of the things the story looks at is there's, there's going to be a, a huge amount of practical uh, challenges when, when you go back and look at some of these cases that happened so long ago, um, trying to find witnesses, trying to, you know, verify the evidence and things like that, um, and, and the gathering of all the documentation um, just just a, a huge logistical challenge when, you, when, you, when you're trying to do that. The 300 in the city and the 1,500 across the state, is that, that is, if I remember correctly, is that just people who are still uh, in jail? Yes, it is. So, so really, um, we could possibly be talking about a much, much larger universe of people who have been convicted had spent time in prison and has since, since been out, but are walking around with felonies on their records. This is true, and this is something that I've actually been wanting to look into but haven't yet, is how the DAs are going to deal with those cases. I've actually talked to a few people who have had non-unanimous verdicts who are now out, um, and yeah, and would like to get those those convictions looked at again. So I think, I mean, what I would guess, and I don't want to you know speculate, but that that for both the DA candidates as well as attorneys who are who are working on this issue, that they're they're prioritizing people who are in prison. But yeah, ultimately, um, anyone anyone who had had a, a, a conviction on a non-unanimous jury, even if they're out of prison, could could have a claim here.
Absolutely. I mean, you know, this we're talking we're you know we're talking about people for whom you know having that felony on the record could be a problem for many different types of employment. If they get arrested and charged again, they could be charged as habitual offenders based on a ten to two uh, guilty verdict. So. You know, I, I certainly understand the uh, prioritizing people who are still actually in prison, but but I do wonder if these candidates have considered the full potential scope of this project um, and what it would take to actually get it done. And, and I'll, I'll be very interested to hear their, their plans for accomplishing. Looking at it through the prism of the DA race, how is this playing out? One of the arguments between the candidates over who would be, you know, the, the better person to take on this task, you know, uh, Jason Williams has been critical of, of uh, Kiva Landrum's time in the Harry Connick administration and, and her time as interim DA and has basically argued that when she's looking back at these cases, she's not going to be able to objectively analyze whether or not it was a fair prosecution because she was a part of, of these DA's offices and she's going to be inherently protective of them and she's, she, she won't necessarily give them the critical eye that they deserve. and. Kiva Landrum, for her part, has said that Jason Williams doesn't fully understand how the DA's office works, doesn't, won't be able to um, efficiently review these cases, and also won't be sensitive to sort of the, the victims and witnesses who were involved in those cases in the first place. Yeah, Jason Jason Williams has spent his uh, his professional career, other than being a city council city council member as a, as a defense attorney and, you know, implicit or explicit in many of the uh, uh, points Kiva Landrum has made against him is that he's never prosecuted a case. He doesn't understand it. And as Nick said, he, he, his sympathies tend to go according to, you know, according to people who support Kiva Landrum, uh, that his sympathies tend to, to rest with, with the defendant rather than the victims. Hmm. And, you know, sort of the, the suggested message is that he's not going to be a, a vigorous advocate for the state. Okay. When the Supreme Court hands down their decision, what effect might that have on our situation here? Well, if the Supreme Court decides that the ruling, their previous ruling that non-unanimous juries are unconstitutional should be retroactive, those 324 cases in New Orleans and, and the 1,500 or 1,600 throughout the state will be guaranteed new trials. If the Supreme Court decides that it's not retroactive, um, certainly the the fate of the the those cases throughout the state is is much less certain. I think it's unlikely that they get new trials unless the state courts decide otherwise or the state legislature decides otherwise. But for the 324 cases in Orleans, it is a little bit unclear what discretion that the individual judges have in in each of these cases generally if a prosecutor and a defendant come together and agree that they want to vacate a conviction judges do that um judges will go along with that now what's going to happen if that's the case with with hundreds of cases um i think it's less clear i think that the judges do have some discretion from what i understand to potentially say no, I'm not going to vacate this conviction, even though both the defendant and the and the prosecution would like to. So hmm. there may be some uh, conflict there. I'm, I'm not quite sure how it's all going to play out procedurally. Okay. Yeah, and let me let me add that um, should the Supreme Court 
decide with uh, Mr. Edwards, who is the, the defendant in the case at the center of these arguments. It's a long process to get those cases all tried again. Um, you know, we're six, no, eight, uh, eight months ago now, the Supreme Court handed down uh, a ruling in a related case that um, declared split jury verdicts unconstitutional but applied and applied limited retroactivity to it. In, in, in that case, meaning that that decision eight months ago only applied, the retroacti retroactivity only applied to cases that were still in active appeals. Mm. Um, and those cases, a lot of them are, you know, only just beginning to get to, get to, to the point of being retried, you know, eight months later, a lot of those cases. Okay, all right, so a lot remains to be seen but what will be decided on Saturday is who our new DA is. That's right. All right. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Marta, in your beat, we've got some election news coming up or some decisions to be made this Saturday at the, at the ballot box. What's the state of the race in the OPSB elections? Yeah, so we have five active races still um, to fill out to round out the seven-member board, only two of those uh, races were decided in the uh, initial election. So we have five, I think, pretty active races. Uh, three of them have incumbents, um, but all of them have um, challengers who are, you know, bringing new ideas to the table. So I think, I think the narrative kind of here is: Are we going to maintain a status quo in the kind of the ebb reform world that we've lived in uh, post Katrina, where are we going to see some of these challengers who? You know, some of whom don't have, you know, a lot of political experience. Uh, one who's a student, um, mm -hmm. a lot of educators. Are we going to see some of those people elected to the board? And that could really change the composition of the board. Do you predict turnout to be a little higher than a typical runoff election just because of everything that's going on with COVID? I think and... the, the DA's race is definitely drawing people's attention. Um, the school board race, while like very interesting overall, um, might, might not necessarily be drawing people, but um, it's definitely drawing some people. Um, and then the tax propositions like we've seen, those are, um, I think, absolutely catching people's eyes. How much money are you seeing being spent in advertising? If You know, I haven't done a deep dive on that recently, but personal um, your anecdote your personal anecdotes are you are you getting flyers and are you seeing stuff around i'm definitely seeing signs around um definitely seeing a lot online i i personally live in a district that was already decided so i'm not I'm not getting any of these mailers that are uh, going out to other folks well i live in a district that's still up for grabs um and yeah I, i'm seeing a ton of stuff uh both in the mail uh people canvassing on the street uh, specifically for the school board election. And I, I'll also say that, you know, we continue to see, you know, as we did when we first talked about this before the November 3rd election, you know, we continue to see a lot of uh, checking it sort of casually the other day. You know, we continue to see a fair amount of national money um, coming into these elections in, in large dollars from, uh, from various foundations and, uh, wealthy people who are interested in education policy. Um, the one that we mentioned last time, I believe, was uh, Jim Walton, who is, uh, you know, the, the uh, Walmart heir. Uh, and we've, we've seen a fair amount of money, uh, you know, somewhere north of, north of $100,000, and I think even more than $200,000 coming directly from his pocket into these, into these races. 
Marta, tell us what's going on with numbers of COVID cases in the schools. The latest numbers haven't been published yet. Yeah, so we actually saw the numbers rise before the holiday. I think that's um, the more concerning part here. Yeah. Um, the Thursday before Thanksgiving break, we had, uh, you know, 50-some new cases and more than 700 people were in quarantine. So one can imagine that those numbers have gone up over the break if people were exposed or, you know, the, the more troubling part might be that if they haven't received test results yet, even if they traveled or something, that maybe the numbers haven't gone up quite yet. But I think I think everyone everywhere, nationwide, citywide and district wide are looking at, you know, what effect did Thanksgiving have on the country um, currently, even with, you know, some testing that wouldn't have occurred because of the holiday. Currently, we have a in the city, we have a hundred day, 101 new cases average per day, and that's over a week's time. And, you know, initially when schools were going back, kind of when we were coming off that second wave, the district was using a threshold of 50 new cases per day. So we, I think we're going to have to see them address that here today. Yeah, well, and and we're, we saw some concerning numbers in Orleans Parish yesterday uh, from the state, right? Right. Those are, that was a big jump um, from what we've been seeing. Typically, um, I talked to, in, that, in those state numbers, we have both public school and private school um, information. I asked right. both the district and the archdiocese, and neither of them could give me a breakdown. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so yeah, just, just to give everyone a background, um, uh, New Orleans Public Schools releases their data on Thursday afternoons. We're recording this on Thursday morning, so we haven't actually seen that yet. Um, but on Wednesday afternoon, the state releases its school outbreak data. The thing with the state data is that it doesn't, it, it will show you uh, numbers of cases in each parish that are believed to be connected to schools, but it doesn't say public school or private school or whatever. So we saw a big jump compared to, I believe, higher than every other parish yesterday. Is that correct, Marta? That you is know? correct, although I'm wondering if the numbers weren't a tiny bit wonky because a lot of the parishes were reporting zero cases. Yeah. Or one to four. Yeah, still, though, I mean, it was it was larger than, than a lot of even the, the, uh, the big parishes where you would, you would assume they would have more consistent and reliable data. And it was larger than previous weeks, which I think is the most notable part. So I suspect, although I don't know, when we get to Thursday afternoon, by the time this podcast uh, goes on our website, we might see another jump in the Orleans Parish Schools data. Do you know statewide if where educators are sort of falling in terms of the vaccine distribution? I don't know exactly where they might fall in the state plan. I believe... Uh, from what I remember of, of the uh, you know the sort of initial CDC guidelines yeah. that they would fall they would fall I believe into the second group that includes essential essential employees. It would be healthcare workers first, and then you know, Which, teachers would fall into like you said that essential worker group right next. State governments though don't need to follow the CDC guidelines; they can do whatever they want. Yeah, the state is going to have its own plan, but I suspect the state is going to follow federal guidelines fairly closely. I have not actually seen the current version of the state plan, so I don't know, but that's that's generally been the pattern with, with um, coronavirus policy in the state is that they're sticking fairly closely to federal guidelines. Okay. 
Okay, well, next week we'll talk about the election results. We'll see what, what shook out. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Have a great week. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>